It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. This is Early Stuart England, Episode 76, The Undecay of Trade. It is only periodically intruded on our narrative, but for pretty much all of the 1620s, England was mired in a persistent trade recession. You may recall the introduction of this theme in Episode 35, The Decay of Trade, which covered events in 1620. In the years that followed, there was little improvement. War distracted the government from dealing with the problem, and indeed the conflict itself exacerbated things. Many of England's trading partners in the Jacobean boom times became enemies. First Spain, then France, with whom Buckingham engaged in a suicidal trade war. Naval assets were used up in the expeditions to Cadiz and the Isle of Ray, leaving merchant shipping vulnerable to pirates out of Dunkirk. Meanwhile, war disrupted trade networks at home. The coastal towns of the south bore a heavy burden in housing the soldiers and sailors that returned from England's failed military ventures and political disputes over war funding spilled over into the economy. The most dramatic example of this was the tonnage and poundage tax strike that halted trade for the first half of 1629. As we discovered in our earlier episode on trade, England's declining fortunes had a lot to do with long-term economic trends. But the difficulty of managing an economy in wartime had undermined the state's ability to address the crisis. We focused on the military misfortunes of the decade, but the 1620s were a grim time for English men and women at home, too. Depressed trade and the accompanying economic hardship were perhaps contributing factors to the fractious political atmosphere of the decade. By European standards, the English were a lightly taxed people. But when coupled with unemployment and belt-tightening at home, the central government's demands for revenue were seen as burdensome. Rising unemployment and poverty were exacerbated by soldiers and sailors returning from war. The state struggled to feed and clothe these men when they were on campaign. There was no money at all when they returned home. As we saw, Buckingham was the target of their frustrations, ultimately leading to his assassination. But Buckingham's death did little to alleviate the problem, and impoverished soldiers became a familiar sight in the towns of England. So how did this grim picture of poverty change so dramatically in the 1630s? One obvious answer is peace. Young men who would have otherwise been drawn into military service were allowed to stay home and work. Ships could be used for trade, rather than pressed into service for naval expeditions. In theory, peace with Spain meant less danger from Dunkirk or pirates, though in practice, pirates still acted like pirates. But while peace loosened the shackles on the English economy, several other factors helped make the 1630s an even more impressive boom than James's early years. One such factor was the end of the general European population boom that had been going on since the 16th century. Paradoxically, I've earlier used this population growth as an explanation for the growth of the English cloth trade. The higher population meant more consumers across the continent. But the flattening of the population growth worked to England's benefit in the 1630s. 
Growth had created more consumers, but it had also created highly competitive labor markets, driving wages down. Inflation had also been a constant reality over the past century, driving the price of food and land ever higher. Gradually, in the 1630s, this demographic pressure eased. Food was suddenly more plentiful, and the real value of wages rose. The food riots of 1629 that we covered in episode 64, Captain Carter, fast receded in the rearview mirror. Poor harvests and high food prices ensured the crisis atmosphere persisted into 1631, but as the decade continued, stability and prosperity took hold. In fact, the miserable 1620s paved the way for the more comfortable 1630s. The frequent harvest failures and hardships of war played a role in slowing population growth. So too did a cooling of the climate that took place across the globe in the early 17th century. Disease fed off all of these factors. The famous plague that disrupted the Parliament of 1625 was no isolated incident. Although terrible for those who lived through it, and especially those who didn't, the 1620s served to halt the persistent population growth that had been causing so many economic and social problems. The men and women of the 1630s reaped the benefits of this demographic shift. But if the 1630s brought prosperity, the decade didn't bring it in equal measure. Generations of estate consolidation, whether in the form of enclosure or disafforestation, meant that the division between rich and poor in England grew. Wealthier families were better able to weather the long period of inflation, and when the dust settled, they held a higher proportion of the land. Small-time landholders weren't able to cope and had to sell. Meanwhile, the consolidation of large estates eroded the land held in common. As we've seen, this had a ruinous effect on rural populations who counted on the commons for subsistence. The return of trade and economic growth did little to correct these inequalities. In part, this was due to the government's revenue projects. Parliamentary subsidies drew money from the wealthier segment of society. The subsidy rolls only included men of property and assigned contributions based on wealth. However, in the absence of Parliament, Charles turned to other measures. We saw several of these in action, in episode 72, Paying the Bills. These tended to reach further down the social scale. For instance, the infamous soap monopoly. Although initially a fiasco, the soap monopoly got better organized as the decade went along and actually brought in money. But the revenue didn't just come from the rich. It came from anyone who used soap. Wealthy households could maybe afford a modest increase in laundry costs, but poorer families with thinner margins faced real hardship. From the perspective of the central government, the total revenue generated by the soap monopoly was measured against what would have been raised by a subsidy. But viewed from below, the soap monopoly had a material difference. The burden was placed on many subjects who would have never had anything to do with parliamentary taxation. Charles's most infamous revenue-raising device, ship money, did not emerge until the second half of the 1630s, so we'll be getting to it soon. But here, too, the burden was spread further down the social scale than the old parliamentary subsidy. This is an important distinction to make, as quite often assessments of the government's experimental revenue devices in the 1630s tend to focus on total amounts, but the distribution of the burden changed noticeably. Nor was this just an issue for poor laundrywomen. Families hovering on the margin between gentry and working farmers also struggled in the 1630s. Here, knighthood fines were particularly damaging. These were the fines the government levied on men who were wealthy enough to be knights, but had not shown up at Charles's coronation in 1626 to be knighted. Due to inflation, the old property standard for knighthood was ridiculously low. 
For men near the cut-off line, simply travelling to London could be ruinously expensive. This was not the knightly leisure class of old. These were men dependent on productive land for a living. But if you had a decent-sized estate, or were involved in trade, the peace and stability of the 1630s brought plenty of rewards, and Richard Weston was the man to thank. Not only had Charles pulled England out of the wars on Weston's advice, but he also tenaciously attacked the crown's debts. By the middle of the decade, the government was in the black, and responsible debt servicing ensured that future loans would be readily available at reasonable rates. For the first time in our entire run of episodes, England's government was not facing a financial crisis. The annual revenue generated by customs doubled during the 1630s, up to £500,000 a year. Not only did this mean more money for the crown, but it changed how the government thought about finance. During Elizabeth's reign, 40% of crown revenue came from rents collected on royal lands. In the 1630s, rents only accounted for 15% of revenue, with customs shooting up to a full two-thirds of royal cash flows. From the perspective of the Treasury Department, England was no longer a medieval agrarian society, but an early modern trading nation. This commercial success had been a long time coming. A brief refresher on trade in our period is helpful. The great shake-up in northern European trade had its origin point in the permanent blockade of Antwerp during the Dutch Revolt. With the main entry point into European markets closed, new opportunities abounded. The new kids on the block in Amsterdam struck first, while England was somewhat held back by the monopoly power of the merchant adventurers. This powerful trading consortium had built up generations of networks in Antwerp, and was therefore slow to adapt to the new circumstances. Worse, their dominance of London's commercial world prevented new players from stepping in. Cockaine's project in 1614 was partly an attempt to break the power of the merchant adventurers, but it failed miserably. Then, war came in the 1620s, ruining the progress of James's peacetime trade boom. By the time we get to the 1630s, the merchant adventurer's heyday was decades in the past, and new, innovative forces were ready to drive English trade to new heights. Diversification was the name of the game, as English merchants began to engage in more than just shipping cloth to the Netherlands, the merchant adventurer's centuries-old stock in trade. For instance, for many years, French fishermen had been alone in exploiting the Grand Bank's fisheries off the coast of Newfoundland. But with their ships no longer threatened by war, English fishermen now made it their home. Peacetime opportunities were even more prevalent on the continent. London became a leading port for the re-export of goods, especially from the Spanish Empire. With Spain being at war with most of Europe, Spanish merchants found it difficult to get their goods into the European market. The merchants of London happily stepped in to help them out. Spanish tobacco and spices filled up the warehouses along the Thames until English ships took them to France, Germany, or the Netherlands. Similarly, Spanish gold was minted in London so that it could be turned into cash payable to Spanish soldiers on the continent. English middlemen made out quite well in this business. James had shown the commercial benefits of peace, but Charles was demonstrating that those were dwarfed by the commercial benefits of peace when everyone else in Europe was at war. War provided even more opportunities in the form of protection and the carrying trade. In the Mediterranean, the London-based Levant Company provided escorts for merchants of all nationalities, French, Spanish, Italian, you name it. In Asia, Spanish and Portuguese ships, under constant threat from Dutch raiders, were protected by English East India Company vessels. Or better still, foreign merchants simply paid English ships to carry their goods for them. Either way, English trading companies started to profit 
not just from their own trade, but from everyone else's. The broadening of English commercial interests had political consequences. This is, after all, a podcast about political history. One of them you may have picked up on is that England's partners in many of these enterprises were their old enemies. France, but especially Spain. Perhaps less obvious is that England's main competitors in the commercial world were the United Provinces of the Netherlands. London challenged Amsterdam as the re-export capital of Europe. English escorts battled Dutch pirates in Southeast Asia. If England was morphing into a modern commercial state, then it would have to start redefining its friends and enemies. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. But the most immediate political repercussions of the rise of trade came within London. Political power and trade had always gone hand-in-hand in the city, so a revolution in how England traded, by necessity, changed London's politics. In the 1610s, 75% of London's international trade was with Northwest Europe, particularly the Netherlands. This was the traditional cloth trade of the merchant adventurers, with which we are all hopefully familiar right now. By the 1630s, that trade accounted for just 35% of the city's international commerce. Fringe markets like the Far East at 11% and America, 5%, made modest progress, but the real shift was towards the Mediterranean, which accounted for 44% of London's trade. As London's trading companies divided the world amongst themselves, this meant a radical shift in power. The biggest losers in this changing world were the merchant adventurers. Despite the booming trade all around them, their business was in severe decline. During the 1630s, they exported half as much cloth as they had in the first ten years of James's reign. This decline in fortunes translated into defeat at the ballot box. Once, the merchant adventurers had dominated the ranks of London aldermen and mayors, but now they began to lose their grip on power. Stepping in to take the place of the merchant adventurers were those merchants doing all that trade in the Mediterranean, especially the Levant Company, which held a monopoly on trade with the Ottoman Empire. Here, we're going to have to dig for a deeper explanation than the opportunities of peacetime trade. Why was the destination for English imports changing so rapidly? A large part of the answer lies in what the English were exporting. Cloth still dominated, but a different kind of cloth was being carried out of England. In the terminology of the period, new draperies were taking over from the old draperies that had dominated English production for generations. The old draperies were woolens, produced from the short, fine fleece of England's sheep population. These produced a heavy, durable cloth that had for so long found an eager market in Europe, especially the Netherlands. These old draperies form the backbone of the trade we've become familiar with in this podcast. Cheap English labor and production costs ensured profits for London exporters. But lately we've seen this trade hit hard times. War, political squabbles, and the erosion of England's price advantage all served to depress the trade in the old draperies. The trade boom of the 1630s didn't solve the old draperies problem so much as it shifted production to the lighter, new draperies. These were produced by worsteds, which required longer, stronger fleece than the woolens of the old draperies. The new draperies were less durable, but lighter, 
and could be more easily mixed with other materials like cotton or silk. The change in production had been building for quite some time, fueled by two factors. First, the long-term benefits of enclosure. The resulting consolidation of pasture land meant the consolidation of sheep flocks. This allowed for far greater directed breeding of sheep than was ever possible when groups of small flocks shared common land. English sheep became larger, fatter, and most importantly, produced fleece suitable to the worsteds of the new draperies. The second long-term factor was the steady flow of Dutch refugees into England. You see, the Dutch had perfected new drapery production techniques as a way to adapt to the flood of cheap English old drapery imports. As war continued to ravage the Low Countries, many Dutch producers fled to the more peaceful English countryside, taking their production methods with them. As English sheep improved in quality over the 17th century, the Dutch migrants got access to the raw materials they needed. Their English neighbors quickly copied them. Now, this brief lesson in the history of fabric has been fun, but how did all of this shift power from the merchant adventurers to the Levant Company? The answer lies in the market for new draperies. English producers faced stiff competition in the Netherlands. But elsewhere in Europe, where the English didn't need to compete with Dutch domestic production, the new draperies flourished. What's more, the lighter cloth was well suited to the warmer climate of the Mediterranean. English cloth had always struggled to make inroads in places like Italy because it was too heavy. But now English producers were making fabrics that Italians, Spaniards, or Turks could actually wear. The fact that new draperies were less durable only helped. That just meant more purchases. The Levant Company, with its networks and contacts all through the Mediterranean, was ideally placed to reap the benefits of these new markets. The company also oversaw an explosion in imports into England. Silk imports shot up tenfold compared to Elizabeth's reign. English consumers bought currants from Greece and spices from the East in increasing amounts as well. As more and more English men and women became drawn into the market, rather than producing their own goods, a domestic market emerged. Importantly, this was a mass market, not merely limited to the rich. Tobacco had become cheap enough for everyone to enjoy its health benefits. Currants were a popular addition to meals all across the social spectrum. Silk even made its way into cheaper fabrics, with England getting its own low-quality silk garment manufacturers. Again, it was primarily the Levant Company that served this domestic market, with its exotic goods from the South and the East. So who were these Levant Company merchants that were doing so well? The company itself grew out of a merger of charter companies based in the Mediterranean in the late Elizabethan period. The main obstacle to trade in the Mediterranean, as we have seen in the past, were the Algerian pirates of North Africa. The traditional trading power of the region, Venice, concentrated on speed and carrying capacity in their shipbuilding, but struggled to meet these pirates in open battle. English merchants, on the other hand, commanded vessels designed to double as military ships in time of war. Many of the same English boats that threw back the Spanish Armada in 1588 also protected English trade in the Mediterranean. In fact, the Levant Company merchants were doing so well by the end of Elizabeth's reign that they were the major players in the new East India Company too. Many of the same investors sat on the boards of both companies, and most of the initial East India voyages borrowed Levant Company ships. The East India Company was a bit like the child of the Levant Company. For the time being, the Levant Company remained the larger, more mature outfit, but in time the East India Company would grow into one of the biggest corporate bodies in history. 
Meanwhile, back home, the Levant Company used all this wealth to push the merchant adventurers off their perch atop the political world of London. The Levant Company men started doing just as well, if not better, than the merchant adventurers in city elections. Similarly, company leaders started making inroads at court, usually reserved for members of the Old Guard. In doing so, the Levant Company men were stepping into one of the more important political relationships in early Stuart England. In the 17th century, the trading companies had a symbiotic relationship with the crown. On the one hand, the companies needed the crown to enforce their monopoly rights on trade. No one could trade in the Ottoman Empire except Levant Company members, a rule enforced by royal power. But on the other hand, the crown relied on international trade for much of its tax revenue. Both sides of the arrangement needed the other. This relationship was further solidified by the fact that the trading companies were heavily represented in the consortiums that bid for the customs farms. In other words, they participated in, and profited from, the collection of taxes. As we've seen, the crown then used these consortiums as sources of credit. At times, this could be a stormy, contentious relationship, but crown and company depended on one another for their survival. It has been the habit of this podcast to use the lives of men, and occasionally women, to tell the story of 17th century England, so I figured that might be a useful way to track the changes in this relationship between the Crown and the trading companies. Luckily, the man I want to highlight is one we have a little bit of a connection to already, Maurice Abbott. Maurice was the younger brother of George Abbott, the recently deceased Archbishop of Canterbury. You may remember that the Abbots were a fairly humble family involved in the cloth trade in Surrey, south of London. In fact, it seems that the father of the family, also named Maurice, was illiterate. You may also recall that the boy's mother, Alice, had run a Kickstarter campaign to pay for George's education. Another son, Robert, had also gone on to study at Oxford, but by the time young Maurice Jr. came of age, the family was out of money and ideas. As the fifth of six sons, Maurice had to make do with an apprenticeship. Through his teenage years and into his early 20s, he worked under a draper. Maurice rose in the merchant world as quickly as his brother had in the world of the church. In 1588, at the age of 23, he joined the brand new Levant Company and became an agent in Aleppo. While in Syria, he developed contacts in the Ottoman Empire and became a very wealthy man. By the end of Elizabeth's reign, he was back in England, overseeing affairs from London rather than doing the grunt work at the ends of the earth. That was a young man's game. After his return, he became a fixture in London politics. Maurice inherited the abbot Calvinist streak and acted as a patron for like-minded ministers at St. Stephen's, his parish church. But the trading companies is where Maurice really threw his weight around. At one point or another, he was involved in nearly all of them. The Virginia Company, the Muscovy Company, an ill-fated consortium searching for the Northwest Passage. But his main focus was always the East. Since that original posting in Syria... Maurice was a Levant Company man through and through. As a major Levant Company player, he was also one of the founding members of the East India Company in 1600. As I noted earlier, in this period, the East India Company was effectively an offshoot of the Levant Company, with many of the same investors and merchants crossing between both. Of course, being a star of the trading companies involved Maurice in far more than just commerce. He kept busy with diplomatic missions, particularly to the Netherlands, as the eastern trade constantly pitted his business interests against the Dutch. In this, he made friends with some other characters we're familiar with. For instance, Dudley Diggs, the perennial representative of the merchant class in Parliament. Maurice also took his turn in politics. 
through the 1620s, he acted as the Levant and East India man in Parliament. This led to a notorious conflict with the Duke of Buckingham. It all started in 1622, when the East India Company joined forces with the Persian Empire in an attack on Portuguese trading posts in the Persian Gulf. A fleet of nine company ships supported Persian land forces. The campaign, which ran from January to April, was successful. The big prize was the island of Hormuz, guarding the entrance to the Persian Gulf, which Persia subsequently annexed. As you can imagine, the grateful Persians opened up their markets to company merchants. The only bad news for the company was that William Baffin, a celebrated explorer of the Northwest Passage who gave his name to Baffin Island, died in the fighting. At least that was the only immediate bad news. When word of the victory reached England, the East India Company found itself in hot water. The problem was Buckingham. As Lord Admiral, he was entitled to a tenth of the company's loot. The seizure of Portuguese goods at Hormuz amounted to £100,000. The company dubiously argued that, at the time, England was not at war with Portugal, or their Spanish overlords, and so Hormuz did not constitute a war prize per se. Buckingham and his lawyers were ready for this, and retorted that if that was the case, then he'd hit the company with a £10,000 fine for illegal piracy. In the end, the company bowed to Buckingham's threats to make life miserable for them, and coughed up the 10%. In the parliaments of the 1620s, it was Maurice's job to try and reverse this decision, or get back at Buckingham in some other way. In this, he was somewhat successful. As you may recall, one of the charges of impeachment brought against Buckingham in 1626 was that he had extorted money from the East India Company. The charge was added thanks to the tireless work of Maurice Abbott. But if Abbott felt any satisfaction in attacking Buckingham, he and his company friends soon regretted it. The king immediately identified Maurice as an enemy. After all, in addition to attacking Buckingham, he was good friends with Dudley Diggs, who Charles had arrested for his part in the impeachment, and the brother of the troublesome archbishop, George Abbott. While Parliament was still in session, Charles took the customs farm contract away from a consortium led by Maurice and placed it in the hands of Paul Pinder a merchant with an impeccable reputation for loyalty to the crown. What's interesting for us is that Charles had somewhat misdirected his wrath. Maurice Abbott and the Levant-slash-East India Company set were not gung-ho anti-Buckingham partisans. The example of the Earl of Warwick and his various colonial companies highlights the contrast. For Warwick, the colonial companies were about projecting English and Protestant power against the Spanish Empire. Trade and wealth were secondary considerations. But for Abbott, trade was the only game in town. He joined in the attack on Buckingham in 1626, not out of any ideological opposition, but because the favorite was in a battle with the East India Company over a particular issue. If that issue could be resolved, Abbott was happy to work with Buckingham or any other royal official. Buckingham was not even the greatest obstacle the East India Company faced. That honor went to the Dutch the company's major competitor in Asia. This once again highlights the difference between Warwick and Abbott. For Warwick, the Dutch were the great ally in the anti-Spanish cause. For Abbott, they were the great enemy in the battle for commercial dominance of the globe. I mentioned earlier that Abbott had spent some time in the Netherlands in the 1610s. He was there trying to negotiate some way for English and Dutch merchants to peacefully coexist in Asia. The result was a settlement both nations agreed to in 1619. By its terms, English and Dutch merchants could operate out of each other's ports. 
However, the agreement had some ambiguities that were magnified by the fact that all this would be taking place thousands of miles from Europe. The Dutch seemed to think that while English merchants were in Dutch trading posts, they would fall under the jurisdiction of Dutch law. The English, on the other hand, thought that cross-jurisdictional matters should be settled by an Anglo-Dutch council in Batavia, established by the treaty. This confusion would have fatal consequences. And we've actually seen these consequences earlier in the narrative. You may recall that the Anglo-Dutch coalition of 1624 was almost ruined by news of a conflict between English and Dutch merchants in Asia. This was the Amboina Massacre. The Dutch had a trading post at Amboina, present-day Maluku in Indonesia. In 1623, the governor of the post suspected that there was a plot to murder him. Japanese mercenaries would do the deed, but he was sure that the guiding hand behind the plot was English. A captured Japanese ronin confessed everything. The English intended to take over the trading post and eliminate the governor. The Dutch moved quickly, rounding up ten English merchants in the area, as well as nine Japanese soldiers and one Portuguese trader. They were waterboarded until they confessed their involvement, then executed for treason. The Dutch argued that since the Englishmen were under their jurisdiction, the punishment was legal. The English countered by saying that the dispute should have been taken to the joint Anglo-Dutch body in Batavia. When the news hit Europe, there was a public outcry, but the looming war with Spain took priority. Leaders on both sides worked to smooth things over, rather than wreck their new alliance over an incident on the other side of the world. Eventually, almost 30 years later, the two sides settled the issue, with the families of the English merchants receiving around £90,000 in compensation. But one man refused to sweep the Amboina massacre under the rug, Maurice Abbott. He responded to the massacre by putting himself forward as governor of the East India Company. As governor, his position on the Dutch was blunt. All treaties with the Dutch, he said, are but so many treacheries. From then on, it was pro-Dutch men like the Earl of Warwick that Maurice often battled with, not the crown. You may recall that Warwick had ravaged the seas of Southeast Asia as a pirate in the 1610s. At least he had until East India Company's ships stopped him. Warwick and Abbott now engaged in a bitter legal battle over that incident. Warwick demanded compensation for his seized ships, and the East India Company defended their actions as legitimate. Throughout the early 1630s, Warwick and his allies targeted Abbott's regime in the East India Company for a hostile takeover. As you may recall, they had done the same thing in the Virginia Company, ousting conventional merchants in favor of anti-Spanish ideologues. Warwick appealed to small-time investors, disenchanted with the powerful elites of the company. But Abbott offered stiff resistance, and after years of contested elections and accusations of corruption, the old guard of the company emerged victorious by the middle of the decade. Abbott's victory clarified the politics of London during the 1630s. The power of the old merchant adventurers had been broken. English commerce would no longer be dominated by the cloth trade with the Netherlands. Warwick had tried to step into the vacuum, but his attempt to radicalize London's trading companies had failed. Power now lay in the hands of the merchants of the Levant Company and their sister project, the East India Company. Despite their past differences, these were people Charles could strike a deal with. In fact, after he stepped down as East India Company governor, Maurice Abbott would go on to become mayor of London. From that position, he developed a cozy relationship with the crown. With a reasonable man like Abbott at the helm, that symbiotic relationship between commerce and crown could thrive. In 1635, Charles published a new Book of Rates, the guidebook for customs duties on all products. In aggregate, the tax valuations went up, 
a sign that England's trade was booming and its merchants could afford the government's hand in their pocket. But a close observer would note that the rates paid on some of the Levant Company's key imports, currants and silks, actually went down. As we can imagine, the new powers in London were interested in more than just customs rates. As international merchants, the men of the Levant and East India companies had an interest in foreign policy. The Dutch now had an enemy in a position of significant influence in England. But before we get to the foreign policy consequences of these developments, I want to explore one final dimension of the peaceful 1630s at home in England. Ironically, considering I've just laid out the growing animosity between the English and the Dutch, I'm talking about an English attempt to imitate Dutch engineering. Next time, the breathing room of peace will give Charles the opportunity to take up a long-neglected project, the draining of the wetlands on the east coast of England. As exciting as that sounds from an engineering perspective, we're interested in the political aspects of the project. In creating new arable land to govern, Charles was trying to extend the power of the central state. Also, we'll be meeting some characters that will play a larger role down the road, including a humble farmer named Oliver Cromwell. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.